Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Uh, we had the event. We had the block of the trucker convoy. And then we had the screaming and yelling. And now we're moving into the hearings portion of the play. It's inevitable. And f- this will be followed. Well, I don't know what it'll be followed by, but we will see. But yes, the hearings into the trucker convoy and the usage more particularly of the Emergency Act, whether it was warranted or not, are now underway. This is going to go on for weeks. We are told by the Justice, uh, Paul Rouleau, who is the chair of the Public Order Emergency Commission, that this is not a trial, it's an inquiry. It's not a trial, it's an inquiry. So everybody is going to naturally offer their best information so we can get to the bottom of what was good or bad about this decision. I believe that Justice Rolieu is a very, very brilliant man. I also believe that perhaps he is a tad naive. Uh, let me bring in Stephen Ledrew. He is the former president of the Liberal Party of Canada. He's a commentator. He's the host of the three-minute interview that you can see on YouTube. He joins me now. Stephen, how are you? I'm very well, Scott. It's an interesting day in Ottawa with this inquiry. Well, yeah, when, when the person who's overseeing it points out that, you know, I know that this is not a trial, so everybody can come forward and bring us their best, most honest information and basically lay all their cards on the table because we just want, everybody just wants truth. I, I do find that a little precious because, you know, look, neither side wants that. Neither side really wants the truth of this to come out, do they? Uh, you're absolutely, well... One side wants it to come out. Those who are opposed to the Emergencies Act, they want the truth to come out. And if the, the truth supports so them, who are su- supporting it are is the government, the cabinet, Trudeau, and uh, they may not want it to come out. But I think what uh, uh, Mr. Justice Rouleau was talking about was the fact that there is no liability. He can make findings of fact. He will make recommendations, but he's not going to say, "Well, because you did this wrong." you're going to jail or you're going to get fined. I, I sense that he meant that in a more legal way. Yes, yes. That there's no, there are no repercussions from this. No one is going to be put into, into you know, hang in, uh, in bars <laughs> in a jail. This is going to be <laughs> no. what happened and who did what right and who did what wrong, but notwithstanding what he finds, it's not going to make any difference to that person's or that, that institution's um, future, but it's going to be difficult. I mean, from my understanding, there are 65 witnesses and there are six, uh, 30 days, six weeks, so say 30 days of, of hearings, and there are a lot of parties there. There are a lot of lawyers. I, I find it amazing that he is going to be able to get through this, but as um, the commissioner himself said, Scott, um, he, there can't be an extension. It's not like other inquiries where they say, well, we're not finished yet. We need another six weeks or we need another you know, two years, like in Air India. He has to have his report out. It's going to be an amazing situation to watch as the parties scramble for cover. Yeah, and, and you know, look, I, I, when you said that it, nobody is liable or no one's going to jail or anything, that's 100% true, of course. But there are absolutely enormous political implications on this. I mean, if it, we don't Ooh. know how this is going to play out, but yeah, no, the, the prime minister or the safety minister, security, whatever it is, are not going to jail. None of those things. 
But if it were to turn out that this does not go well for the government, or if it turns out this does not go well for the protesters, there are enormous political spill-off to this. Oh, you're absolutely right, Scott. In fact, it's not going to be so much the report, the finding that uh, the commissioner actually eventually hands down. I think this is going to be um, captivating for Canadians for the next six weeks as they listen to and watch the witnesses, particularly cabinet ministers, you know, the prime minister, uh, Marco Mendicino, who said we were worried that they were going to rape all the women of Ottawa, <laughs> who said all the cops wanted the emergency power, all the cops have since said not one of us asked for it. There's been a lot, lot of lying going on already. So you're absolutely right. It, as I said, it's not, I, I think the judge meant that in a legalistic way when he said, he did, of you know, course, it's not a question of liability. Politically, though, you are absolutely dead on the money. This could be an amazing expose uh, for the Trudeau government. I just think it's, again, amazing when you have all these lawyers in a room. I think they're going to have to limit the cross-examination because otherwise, uh, to have the prime minister on there and for people to cross-examine him, that alone could take a week. So it's going to be, it's going to be an amazing show. But Rouleau is a tough, uh, tough judge, experienced judge, and a very smart man. And um, if anybody can uh, keep a tight rein on it, he will. I, I hope the first rule that he puts in, and I know they've started, but I would, I truly, and I say this half joking because he'll never do it, but I really wish he would. You must answer the question in 30 seconds because you've got <laughs> skilled politicians who are excellent at running out the clock. And they will give the longest, most flowery, non-answer answers and will never, and, and I, I sincerely, that he'll never say a 30 second limit, but I sincerely hope that the one thing he does do is no matter who it is on either side, that he will say, answer the question. You didn't answer the question. Answer the oh. question. Oh, and he will do that. He is a very experienced uh, judge, and I suspect that he will do that. What's going to be interesting is that the answer is that Trudeau gives to reporters day after day. And I've made, I've done shows on this, and I've complained about the fact that uh, both parliamentarians and reporters just let him, as you say, run out the clock and say nothing. And Trudeau's an expert at that. There are a lot of lawyers in that room. I know some of them very well. They aren't going to put up with that crap. They're going to say, with respect, Prime Minister, answer the question. They will do that. But it's still going to come down to the justice to say you must do it. Because the lawyers can go after him and and hector him all along. It's going to be up to Justice Rolou to say, no, please, you must answer the question. That's, and and again, I'm saying it on both sides. I'm not, I'm not just saying the Prime Minister. Everybody on this needs to answer direct questions and not play games. In the time we have left here, the other side of this though, that I, and I was joking about this at the very top of the show when I was introducing the topic today. When this whole thing is done, I don't care what the report says, those who are pro-government anti-protesters will still be pro-government anti-protesters. Those who are pro-protester anti-Trudeau government will still be pro-Trudeau, pro-protester anti-Trudeau government. Ultimately, we're going to spend millions on this, and I'm not sure that more than half a dozen people across the entire country are going to change their mind. Um, you know, I, I, I hear your point on that, but I think that depending on the evidence, depending on the doctors that are put out, that a number of people who support the prime minister in a knee-jerk fashion are going to have to look at this and say, oh boy, I mean, when, 
with officials across the country when Alberta said they didn't need it. And they had that crossing into the states. They had it under control. They didn't need this act. When you have other police officers say, well, they didn't need this, then it's going to be hard-pressed. And I suspect that uh, both the Prime Minister and Mendocino, neither of whom are have a reputation of answering questions honestly and truthfully, uh, when they are giving their evidence, I suspect there's going to be a number of people who are going to have to say, gee, you know what? We really did, uh, the government really did, well, from what evidence I know, did take a wrong turn. There's money people donated that's still in escrow, still being held by this act. I mean, that's just let, let reprehensible. So let me put a caveat on my cynical comment then that I say nothing will happen. If there is some piece of evidence that is shocking, maybe yep. people will, either way, people may change their opinion. But I think that if we simply play the game that I kind of expect is going to be played, where we just give the answers I expect and we run with the clock, that's where I think nothing happens. But maybe if there's a bombshell, yes, maybe one way or another, um, maybe then we do change our opinion. We shall see. Uh, Stephen LeDrew, uh, go look him up on three-minute interviews. They're excellent. Uh, go look him up. Stephen, thank you as always for the time. Really appreciate it. Always a great pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. There is a new book that's out called Shopomania, Our Obsession with Possession. And what it is, it's a look at why it is that we seem to accumulate and what it is about us that makes us want to do this and some of the, the, the weirdness of the whole concept. And if you really think about it, it kind of is. Uh, the author of this book, he's a familiar name around these parts. His name is Paul Burton. He is the editor-in-chief of the Hamilton Spectator. And he joins me now. Paul, how are you? Good, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Oh, well, you know what? It's it's a fun topic to, well, it, it is unless you're a diehard shopper and then you're going, come on, really? Um, the one thing I love in the world and you're going to ruin it for me now? Um, I mean, Paul, if you when you start this book, one of the things that we have to acknowledge is that people generally do like to shop, many people anyway. Why do you think that is? What is it about shopping that people enjoy? Well, that's the big question in the book and it's a complex one, of course. It's one of the reasons is that that we're told that every corner and every bus stop and every elevator and every social media account to, to do it. So, I mean, advertising plays a big role, but the desire to acquire among humans is unique and, and, and goes back to the, the very first time a, you know, a, a, a hunter and gatherer picked up a rock and, and thought it was interesting. So I think... I think it's human ability to see art in uh, otherwise normal things. And, and you know, when you said about this, I, I want, I've always wondered if it's a learned behavior or if it's something innate with us. And no. the reason I ask that is because if you travel the world, there are many countries, third world countries, developing countries where they don't seem to have the same, now I know they don't have the same means, but where it doesn't seem like it's as, even if it's small things that you might be able to buy, it doesn't seem the same. Is this something that is just a Western thing or no, is there something else to it? Yeah, I think, I think it's innate for all humans. And as you pointed out, I don't think they simply don't have the means yet in developing countries, but uh, they'll be coming and there'll be a lot of stuff needed to satisfy those appetites. So what is it? I mean, as you've thought through this, have you come up with a good theory, because I think that's all it would be at this point, of what itch we're scratching when we do yeah, I th collect things. 
you know, I think there's a lot going on there. As I said, I think humans are able to see in objects something that is more than the sum of their parts, right? So they see beauty or art in, 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 in a shiny rock like a gold or diamond. They're also impressed. We're impressed by our own ingenuity. So we like, we like, we like looking at things and going, wow, that's kind of cool. I want that. And then there's three, of course, status and power, which uh-huh. you know, I, I have this and you don't. Therefore, you know, perhaps I'm better than you or I'm going to get one like you so I can be a part of that group. And I think that's a big part of it. Like we, we, we flock like lemmings to the mall to all buy the same thing at once. And that's part of just wanting to be part of a, a group or a tribe or, or belong. Do you think that's, I mean, I, I think obviously it's changed over time, right? At least the idea of, or at least what it is that we're buying or how much we need to accumulate. I don't remember in the, I mean, homes in the sixties or seventies were smaller and not as, I mean, how has this changed? I guess no, over time, it sure has. You're, you're, you're right. We had smaller homes and bigger families in the sixties and seventies. Now we've got bigger homes and smaller families and a lot more stuff in them. I don't think that humanity has changed or our desires or our innate wants have changed. I think that the the industry and the manufacturing, advertising, retailing, it's become very sophisticated and it's also become shopping as, as a leisure activity that it, that, it, that it once was not. And see, that's the, that's the other really interesting part about this. Uh, people talk about window shopping. Surely there should be some measure of satisfaction. If you just like the act of shopping, then going around and picking up an object, and even if you don't pay for it, you would think it should give you some of the same feeling, but I don't know that it ever does. I don't know. No, there's something specific about owning it. Perhaps not. And there's a great deal of study been done on this too, which I discuss in the book. Uh, people get a... a a thrill, a dopamine thrill from the anticipation of owning something. And then, uh, then they lose it kind of like a good meal or, or sex mm. after it's over, you know, it's, uh, it just sort of dissipates quickly. And it, it, the, the, you know, it's like you and I buying something that we think looks really cool in the store. And then we get home and take it out of the packages. I uh, often have been going, how did, how did I possibly think this was going to be something that I needed or wanted? <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, I think if we look through our homes, we can all find something where we said, how in the world did that end up here? What was I thinking that day? Uh, absolutely, that's the case. But Paul, that to that point, so many people have said, you know what? I've gone through my house. I don't need all this stuff. I'm going to get rid of all the crap. And I think that a lot of people even do that. They follow through on that. And then a year later... They look at their house again and go, wait a second, I thought I got rid of all the crap and now I got all this crap again. Yeah, it's exactly. like we can't undo it. <laughs> yeah, there's a, lot, there's a lot of people that say I'm going minimalist, but then they end up back in the stores filling up the empty spaces in their houses, for sure. You, um, you've come up now, one of the, one of the fun things in this book is you've come up with a number of words that you apply to shopping. I, I want to, I don't have time to go to all of them, but there's a couple here that, that, uh, people can maybe apply next time they see it. What's an, what is a, a shop hustle? A shop hustle is someone who's, uh, someone who can, a salesman, someone who can move product and move it well. And we know a lot of them and, uh, so, sort of like an apostle, if you pardon the expression. 
So it's like an apostle or whatever who, who's just, so, I mean, you point to someone like George Foreman, who, who may be the greatest shop apostle of all time that he took a grill and turned it into like half a billion dollars in sales. Yeah, I don't know absolutely. who else can do that. Uh, and, and another one, I love this one, Shopperia. I think we can probably guess what that might be. <laughs> yeah, I got a big kick out of that one when we, when I came up with it, but yeah, this is a, an uncontrolled outflow of stuff falling out of our closets or our, our drawers or our garages and into the living rooms of uh, and living spaces of our of our homes there's a there's a story in the book about about elton john having a, a, a an auction so he could find a place to sit in his house <laughs> <laughs> you know it's funny you say that because i think most of us have probably on, on tv one time or another seen one of those shows on hoarders uh slightly different from elton john's scenario but i guess that's the the mentally unbalanced extreme end of where we're talking about here. When you get to the point where literally anything holds value and you can't get rid of any of these things. Yeah. I mean, you know, some of that's mental health. And they, of course they, it is. They, yeah. We, 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 as we get older, even, even me, right. I hold on to little trinkets and doodads that I don't need because they, they contain a memory or for some reason I just can't get rid of it. And, there's a lot of research on that, that the older we get, the harder it is to get rid of stuff because, of course, they become part of our lives. Yeah, and I, we've, we've looked through our basement, and, and this is not necessarily shopping things, but, you know, we've looked through the basement recently, my wife and I, and said, like, what, if we go, what possible reason would my kids want my grade six hockey trophy? that I somehow still have. But we do that with other things that we've bought as well, whether it's from another country, we bought home some little trinket from Turkey or something. We go, well, surely somebody's going to want that. No, nobody really does. (laughs) You're enlightened because most people are still in the dark about that. They they do think that their stuff is valuable and that their kids or their friends or the local garage sale will want that stuff. But you're, you're right. It's, uh, there's just so much of it out there that it's becoming less and less valuable. And then there, of course, there are, there are inexplicable things that are suddenly more valuable, which are covered in the book, <laughs> yeah. like watches or sneakers. You know, how did that happen? I don't know. I, I, I'm glad you brought up, we only have a few seconds left here, but I'm glad you brought up the, I hadn't thought of it, but I just, it crossed my mind when you said garage sale. Garage sales seem to me to be the Petri dish of exactly what you've written about. When people <laughs> throw out for the public to see all the crap that they wasted money on, and then they say, please take it off my hands and maybe give me a little money back for the thousands I've spent on this junk. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Um, and we go to the next garage sale ourselves and buy the neighbor's stuff. That's right. And and then five years from now, we'll clean out our basement, put the same stuff I just bought at the garage sale out and hope someone else will come <laughs> along who's another sucker. Uh, before we go, do you believe that... See, I, I would have thought that the last number of years with COVID when we were all stuck at home might have restricted our shopping or changed our patterns, but I think it changed our patterns. I don't know that it made us spend any less or shop any less though. No, in fact, it, it generated a lot more cash for us to spend more on stuff. We didn't, we weren't spending money on food or travel or theater, so uh, we decided to buy stuff from Amazon or whatever person would deliver it to our door. Yeah, I think I think people got a lot more stuff over the pandemic, and that was part yeah. of part of my reason for writing. 
next summer garage sales everywhere with all the amazon crap that uh, did i say crap enough times in this because it seems like that's what we buy more often than not so maybe it's a, a it's maybe a coarse word or it may be very accurate i'm not sure i'm sure someone will tell me uh paul burton the book is called shopomania our obsession with possession you can find it online you can find it at bookstores uh it's a terrific idea really appreciate you taking a few minutes today thanks scott you're listening to the scott radley show podcast on 900 chml we are heading into now the, uh, well, we soon will be, if we're not already, into the fall TV season. A number of the new shows have started. And, you know, for some people listening right now, that at this point in their lives means nothing because they've cut the cord. They're only watching Netflix, Disney Plus, Amazon Prime, whatever. But for others who are still viewers of broadcast television, that was always a big, big time of the year when all the new shows would come out. Well, I found this these stats and they came out at the end of last year. So they're a few months old, but they're very relevant right now. And it's all about the top shows on average. And these are American numbers from the Nielsen ratings. And other than football, other than NFL football, if you look down the list, NCIS, FBI, Chicago Fire, Blue Bloods, The Equalizer, Young Sheldon, 60 Minutes, Chicago PD, Chicago Med, FBI Most Wanted, The Voice, this is us. This is the, in order. Uh, the Voice Monday, 911, 911 Lone Star, Bull, Magnum PI, American Idol, NCIS Los Angeles, The Good Doctor. I keep going on. Every single one big losses over the year before. I want to bring in Robert Thompson. Uh, he's with Syracuse University uh, with the Blyer School of Broadcast. We, we love having him on here. Uh, thank you for doing this today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. And, you know, I'm glad you brought up. It really was true. In the old days, when all there was was network television and uh, uh, some independence and some public uh, uh, television and everything, it was, you know, that's what everybody talked about. TV Guide used to do the yes. small previews down here. And uh, we would wait for those things. and We'd circle what we wanted to uh, watch. Uh, you know, th there were only, uh, television was an oligopoly. There was a finite number of shows and, uh, it was easy to watch, you know, you'd get a taste of all of them before the season was over. And you pointed out that that has totally changed. You can't even find a TV guide anymore. Uh, when you're checking out of the grocery store, it used to be the, you know, uh, it was everywhere. Um, and the numbers, and again, you said getting rid of football and that's true. Football is in its a class all of its own, but uh, when you take away football, uh, the highest rated non-football show in that list, uh, NCIS, got 10.9 million viewers. That would have put it toward the bottom of the list before the age of cable and streaming. Uh, and it would have gotten the show canceled, no questions asked. And that also, if you look at that, that was down 13.4%. That was one of the big losers, still in first place. But it just, it, it this really to me robert crystallizes what broadcast tv is facing and i don't know whether that's devastating for the broadcast industry because they just know what's happening but boy like every single one of the ones i mentioned was down there was not other than football there was not one that was up in the top 20 right well, okay, so there's a couple of things. I mean, first of all, it's true that uh, uh, when we think back to the, you know, the days of MASH and Roots and Dallas and all of that, uh, we were getting tens of millions of people watching, uh, you know, big hits, 50 million people, huge hits, 80 million people. Um, now we look at the top of that list and it's 10.9. However, I suppose we should keep into perspective that 
even though 10.9 is really, really a low rating in terms of the general history of television, it's still a pretty big number of people compared to what we get, at least in the first releases of most streaming and cable. I think of great shows like, uh, like Mad Men. Uh, you know, when that was out, it was on the cover of every magazine. Everybody was talking about it got over its whole run, maybe in its first week uh, out for each episode, maybe two and a half, 2.3 million, something like that. Uh, Breaking Bad, little more than that, but uh, actually less than its first season. So we do kind of think of these network shows as dinosaurs, but they're still getting a fairly large uh, number compared to everything else that, that, that's out there. However, you point out the, the last column of that, which is the gains and losses. Uh, NCIS, the top of the list without football, uh, down 13%. If that ha- continues to happen every year, uh, that really does bode uh, uh, ill for old school broadcasting. But what else is new? Everything seems to be boding ill for old school broadcast. Well, right. And, and so, and I think we all point to the fact that, as I mentioned off the top, Netflix and Disney Plus and Hulu and whatever else, there's a million different ones now. And I think everyone recognizes this. Um, somebody has suggested, and I found this a really interesting suggestion, and they said, look, the inevitability now becomes that if broadcast is going down, the broadcast companies, especially the cable companies, are going to have to, and if they're going down because of specialty interests that people are logging on to certain streaming services, the inevitability comes that the cable networks that have been able to hold us and pay a lot of money for channels we don't really want are eventually, to keep the business, are going to have to unbundle those packages and and allow us to start purchasing just the channels we want do you think that's a realistic th- idea of where this goes? Well, their their business model very much depended upon that bundling because one of the ways they could have all that programming and specialty program programming was that if you put it all together, uh, the ones that uh, only appealed to a, a smaller number, but people who really liked it, and that's why they got cable, uh, would be subsidized to some extent uh, by the other. But the idea of cable unbundling is kind of making the assumption that cable itself uh, has got a long-term future when it it is pretty clear that the way we, most people or many, many people are watching TV now uh, is of course through streaming. And most of these content uh, places are already making uh, allowances for this. All of the networks of course have got are under big corporate umbrellas (coughs) that include streaming and even a lot of the new series go straight to Peacock. They don't even start at NBC anymore. It's as though uh, uh, Peacock is as much the uh, place to debut NBC shows as the old network was. Uh, CBS, of course, got Paramount Plus. ABC is part of the huge Disney um, uh, world. So it's it's been. It, some people have compared the idea that. Now streaming is kind of like unbundled care, uh, uh, cable because you can choose. I'm yes. going to pay for Peacock, but not Hulu. I'm going to pay for Netflix, but not uh, 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 Apple Plus or whatever. Well, And, and, and that is you. true to some extent. On the other hand, you miss a lot of stuff unless you get a whole bunch of, of different services. That's one of the really interesting things about this is I've always wondered about how many shows people have loved 
that they stumbled upon that they never had any expectation they were going to watch. I'll give you a perfect example. And it's a really, it's a, a guilty pleasure for me. I, I, I never set out, but for some reason I very much enjoy, and I couldn't explain why those um, on HGTV, those house hunter shows or whatever, where you go around and like, I have no oh, intention sure. of buying another house. Yeah. Uh, I don't know why I find it interesting to watch pe- other people shop for a property, but whatever reason, it seems it <laughs> you're works, not alone, but it works. But I never would have set out to find that one day I stumbled on it while I was flipping channels. And as we become more and more niche and just choose the things we want, I wonder how much we miss that things might have been great that, that never get traction because nobody finds them. Well, and it may be even bigger than that. Yes, you're right. Channel surfing had that idea of almost like window shopping as opposed yes, to yes. getting specifically what you want now. So uh, that does go away. And I think we, we do lose a lot, but it might be an even bigger thing in, in that when there was only so many choices, there was by automatically a kind of giant middle that everybody had to come to. Everybody pretty much was watching the same things at the same time. And I think that shared culture uh, had a way of, I mean, it was something we all shared. I, I am, I'm not going to blame the fragmentation of television via cable and then streaming on the reason that why we are so divided uh, today and so at each other's throats. But I think it's got something to do with it. An example uh, I had as a kid, uh, summer of 1972, I had no interest in sports uh, uh, to any great extent. Um, and uh, we only had three channels where I was. And uh, on the weekends, the Olympics were on. And the other two channels were like playing public affairs, something as a 13-year-old I had absolutely no interest in. So I watched the Olympics because I had no other choice. And I started watching track and field events. I got into them. Uh, later the, that fall when school started, I joined the uh, uh, track team my life was affected in an important and I think a positive way by something I would have never in a million years watched if I would have had any other choice. And I didn't. Uh, and, and no, no kid who, and this is a big uh, if, if you've got the opportunity to afford a number of subscription services, you never have to watch anything that you haven't chosen all by yourself. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, look, you can take another example as you were talking, something that was coming to mind there that I hadn't thought of. Would the Beatles have been as big as the Beatles were if Ed Sullivan was just one of the nighttime talk shows on 4 million channels that were out there? It was the fact that that yeah, was I, one I, of three. Yeah. And so everybody, whether you were an old person who didn't get the Beatles or a young person who thought they were amazing, but didn't know not much about them, you could, you could, I think, make a very compelling argument that the Beatles would never have been what they were if they had come along 50 years later, just because of the niche marketing, the niche channels. Yeah, no, I think that's true. And I think you can see evidence of that, that we don't have musical acts. If you go back in time, uh, let's start with when with recorded uh, uh, music, but uh, big stars like Sinatra, Bing Crosby, Elvis, the Beatles, Michael Jackson, all of those uh, uh, folks um, was, were still in that era where you're right, everybody had to see it. You can't really point to I, uh, musical acts now I, I don't know, maybe Beyonce, uh, uh, maybe there's a, there's a few, but if I walked out into the street right now and tried to find a hundred people, all of whom could give me uh, the lyrics of a few songs 
from a single, the same artist. I don't think we could find that. 50 years ago, if you'd have done that with the Beatles, uh, even people that hated the Beatles uh, could give you the lyrics to the songs um, as they were complaining how they kept having to hear those songs. So here's where it gets really interesting to me, among other things, is um, if we've got fewer and fewer people, as the numbers suggest, watching broadcast TV, and that's not anything new, although, as I say, the the sheer volume of shows that are diminishing in the numbers, the, the rate at which they're going down is a surprise. But it, that's not a surprise. But if the numbers are going down, advertisers are always going to be looking for the place where there are the most eyeballs. We're already starting to see streaming services put advertising on their services. At what point does that not just become the new broadcast because you're watching the thing you got away from it because you didn't want the commercials. Now the commercials are there and you're getting basically the same as what we had before, just in a different vehicle. Yeah, not only uh, uh, commercial interruptions, but also once advertisers are paying a lot of money to be on your show, they expect certain sets of standards, their standards, uh, for that show to be amenable to, uh, uh, to selling their products. Um, and that can sometimes be subtle and not, sometimes not so subtle. Um, well, advertisers are still going to broadcast because... Oh, I think we lost Bob cases. there. Oh. But advertisers love uh, streaming, if they can ever figure out quite out what the model is going to be, because it's specific. It, you could go directly for... You know, in the old days, when Mercedes-Benz advertised on a show, maybe, what, 3% of the people watching that show could ever buy a Mercedes-Benz, even though they would, if they were totally convinced by the uh, commercial to do so. Um, now you can go directly to those, um, you know, those other audiences. But there are some other differences. Advertising, of course, a lot of these places that are introducing advertising are going to do the, what the Hulu model was from the start, which is you can pay extra and not get the ads, or you can pay less and get the ads. It's a tiered situation, which, uh, which was not an option we ever had in commercially supported cable or, uh, or, or broadcast. So that's a difference. Uh, and there are other differences that streaming has the opportunity of not having to be exactly 30 minutes long, exactly 60 minutes long. Down here, they don't have to worry about the uh, uh, you know, indecency rules and all that kind of thing. So there's other things that are uh, you know, uh, advantages to being not on broadcast. But we're already seeing broadcast beginning. You heard that rumor, um, which I think might turn out to be true, that NBC was looking to give up an hour of prime time at 10 o'clock back to the affiliated stations. Uh, that was that was a real indication. Even if they don't do that, the very idea that they were flirting with giving up one out of three hours of prime time uh, uh, and no longer putting programming there or selling ads there. Uh, and of course, 10 o'clock, that was the hour that brought us, you know, Hill Street Blues and Dallas and Fantasy Island and, you know, big, uh, uh, massive hit shows. So we're clearly, um, you know, the writing is not on the wall. The writing is clearly already manifesting. Well, if there is one positive out of all this, um, it is that uh, among the biggest losers, society is showing that it still has some taste because among the biggest losers last year, the Bachelor and the Bachelorette. So you know we're, we're not entirely. This is not entirely a lost cause. We are, <laughs> we are, we are beginning to purge out the low hanging lowest fruit on the uh, on the civilizations tree. I don't even know what I'm saying, but you know what I'm getting at. It is although um, we haven't purged it. Uh, nobody's canceled the Bachelor yet, and yet. I don't think they're going to. No, I um, don't think so. To not me, yet. one of the big. 
one of the great advantages is there are a, there are a lot more voices out there. There's room for more programming, good, bad, and everything uh, in between. But overall, I can see a lot more great shows than I could when I was a kid growing up and it was flying nuns and talking horses. So we do have a lot of much better choices. The thing that I see as a big downside is back then, if you could afford to buy a television or get one hand-me-down or whatever, and you could afford your electric bill, everybody got to watch that program, programming for free. Today, even if you wanted to just watch the shows that were nominated for Best Comedy or Best Drama this past Emmy, so just those nominations, I think if I counted right, you would need six different subscriptions at least to do that. And there are a lot of people who just plain can't afford to do that. So good television is really beginning to become one of these have or have not things, which was not the case uh, back in the day when, you know, you had to buy the television set, but then the programming was, was free. It is. Uh, and by the way, for those who love The Bachelor or The Bachelorette, hey, knock yourself out. It's okay. Uh, Bob Thompson, trustee uh, at television, radio, and film at the Blyer Center for Television and Popular Culture, Syracuse University. Thanks so much. As always, always appreciate your time. It's always so much fun to talk to you. Thank you. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.